Welcome to another episode of the Property Nomads podcast. And we're going to try a new format today. It is Property FAQs and a couple of questions that we've been asked as well. I have to start off with a question that has been asked a couple of times actually. And for the purposes on a very rare occasion, this is actually being recorded on video as well, as well as the podcast. So apologies if you listen to the podcast and I keep making video references, but that's why because it's been recorded. First question we've had a couple of times is, Rob, uh, you don't do as many videos now as you used to. Uh, there's a reason for that, and I've started with a non-property question first on purpose. Uh, reason for the lack of videos. Um, really, it's, it's, it's dealing with the autism. That's, that's the main thing. My eye contact over the years has never been ridiculously strong. It makes me sick to my stomach to have consistent eye contact over a long period of time, even by looking into the camera now. Um, I find it quite difficult and not impossible, but so much so that I believe it affects the performance of what I'm trying to do at that time. And if that's talking to investors or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, find that it's just something that doesn't really work for me. However, as we've said many times on the show, uh, life's about pushing yourself, making yourself uncomfortable, and that's the way that you're gonna to get to the next level. So that's why today uh, this is on a video as, as well. And that's also why a lot of the interviews aren't uh, recorded are on video too, is that half the time, to be brutally honest, I am looking completely out the window. I'm listening, I'm actively listening, but my, my eyes are somewhere else. And you know, from an interviewee point of view, that could be quite off-putting. If you're trying to have a conversation with someone, eye contact is normally quite a, a key part of that. And if the person you're speaking to doesn't have great eye contact, um, you can lose that rapport quite quickly. So something I'm working on as well, it's not easy, uh, it's definitely a challenge. And uh, hopefully that answers that question of why there's not a lot of content out there that we do that is video. That will change over time. I think once the travel aspect uh, reappears into the show, um, as and when things happen, that that will change. And the second reason why there's not been a lot of recordings is I've had quite a bad eye infection in the last few months. Uh, also have blepharitis, uh, which is things to do with the eyelids. So half the time I'm, you know, playing with my eye, itching my eye. It's also at the time of recording hay fever season. Anyway, I'll stop making excuses, but hopefully that answers that question as to why there's not a lot of video content. Uh, that will change uh, over time. So, format of this, uh, quite a few FAQs, uh, questions that Aaron gets asked quite a lot when he, he deals with investors day in, day out as uh, part of his job. I also have a few questions as well that we get asked quite a lot. So there's a few questions that are FAQs and then a couple of specific questions at the end uh, that we've been uh, asked for our advice on. As always with this, it's complete advice. It's our opinion. Happy to share things as well. And hopefully you find this format, this episode uh, useful. Of course, if there's some questions that you want answering, uh, email us, rob at tpnpodcast.com um, you know, email in with your questions and if this episode's a hit then we'll do it again of course in no particular order uh, how will i know if i will get a buy to let mortgage good question 
speak to your broker or find a broker, speak to your broker. If you don't have a broker already, email us. We can put you in touch with our broker. Uh, been working together now for a few years. But how will you know if you will get a buy-to-let mortgage? That can be difficult to answer because it seems that every lender has different criteria. Uh, lenders, despite the fact that you know currency supply in this country is increasing uh, day in, day out, uh, some people still find it very difficult to get mortgages, which I find bizarre, but it is what it is. Criteria is changing all the time. Every lender's got their own criteria. Uh, and also every broker's different. Um, every broker's gonna have different contacts, different ways of doing things. But really the answer to that question, how will I know if I will get a buy-to-let mortgage? Speak, speak to your broker. If you don't have a broker, let us know, email us. We'll put you in touch with our broker. He'll be able to help you out. But nine times out of 10, yeah, you just don't know. I would say it depends on your circumstances as well. Uh, are you looking to purchase the buy-to-let in personal name? Are you looking to set up a property company and put the property in the company? I know when we started in 2016, uh, getting a, a company mortgage was an absolute pain in the backside. It was not easy. Thankfully, that process in the last five years has become an awful lot easier as that market has adapted and improved over time. I would certainly, well, I'd be confident in saying that there's many more opportunities now in a limited company capacity. But if you are putting it in personal name, then I think that there is better availability, more options if you're doing it that way. In terms of putting a property into a company a personal name that's the next question uh, what should I do should I put it into personal name or, or put it into a limited company take seek tax advice seek advice from an accountant on that a lot of that comes down to your criteria what are you looking to buy a property for are you looking to create long-term wealth are you looking to create a legacy are you just looking for a little bit of extra cash flow What's your current working position? Uh, there's a lot of tax implications now uh, with uh, Section 24s. Google that if you're not sure what that is. With Section 24s and other bits and bobs, it can be quite complicated when it comes down to putting a property into a personal name or company name. We have always said on this show, seek the necessary professional advice. In this case, it would be an accountant or a specialist tax advisor. If you're not sure where to look, again, email us rob at tpmpodcast.com. We'll put you in touch with our accountant. Um, not an issue. Uh, she's fantastic, very knowledgeable, uh, and, and is also an investor herself. So she understands the position uh, that you will be coming from without a shadow of a doubt. Sticking with mortgage themes, what loan to value should I go for? Again, really ask your broker but also have an idea of what you're getting into property for. So what are you getting into property for? Is it to create the long-term wealth? Is it to accumulate assets? Is it cash flow? Is it to get you out of your jobs? Whatever it is, decide what that is first. The mortgage market's always changing. Loan to values 
again, what is your capacity for risk? Are you happy to have a higher loan to value at the moment? So you're highly geared, but over time, as inflation takes hold, that will push the, push the price of the asset up. And it also erodes away the debt as well, because the prices are going up. So inflation is good fun once you get to grips with it. But what loan to value are you happy with? Most people will go for 75%. That seems to be the industry standard. I know that uh, Aaron and I have spoken about this many a times. Uh, we would go in normally, normally, we would go in at 75% loan to value because it gives a decent level of equity there. Also means if there happens to be a market correction that we're not going to be geared up to our eyeballs, basically. But also in the long term, you know, we've discussed this as well. We are currently in a position where we want inflation to do the work for us, let the economy do the work for us to get to a gearing level of 50%. Then we have also explored the possibility of paying off the mortgages as well and becoming mortgage free. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's a bit stupid. Well, yes and no. Uh, lending can be quite easy, but people seem to make it quite complicated. We found this in the last year or two, um, yeah, regardless of pandemics and circumstances, that some of the lenders have been asking crazy stuff. And even we've sat back and gone, is this worth the hassle? Is this worth the hassle? Uh, if we were mortgage free, then we wouldn't be dealing with any of this hassle. We wouldn't be dealing with uh, the abundance of paperwork, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would that work for the lifestyle that we want to create? We think that that would, but whether we do that in the future is, I don't know, because that's the future. We've got to live for today, live for now. So go back to the question, what loan to value should I go for? And whatever you feel comfortable with, but also what's available to you as well. Again, speak to your broker, have a chat with them, uh, he or she or they, as we live in a woke society now, it could be they, whatever, uh, will hopefully advise you in their best capacity and then you'll be able to get something sorted. Hopefully that answers that. What is your tenant onboarding process? Good question. Ask our lettings agents. Uh, we don't manage our properties. We have we decided from a very early stage that we would not manage our properties. Reason for that is it's not a skill set that Aaron and I have. So if it's not a skill set you don't have or you don't have something, then you either learn to do it or you outsource it. Or we've decided to outsource it. Uh, you know, when you're working with some, some great agents who know what they're doing, they know things better than you do, and they're charging 10% a month, uh, give or take, that's worth it, a absolutely worth it. Again, that will come down to lifestyle preference. Do you want to be inundated with, you know, WhatsApp messages, calls, texts, this is going on, that's going on, etc., etc., etc. Some people would actively love dealing with that. Aaron and I don't. Uh, so we've even got an admin person in that deals with a lot of back and forth between the agents as well. He takes care of most of it. Reason for that is that then frees up the time for Aaron and myself to do the things that we want to do and to work on 
um, other IGTs, income generating tasks. So for example, for myself, it would be doing a lot of podcasting, uh, doing these videos, connecting with other people. Uh, for Aaron, Aaron is risk and compliance manager. He also matches uh, deals to people with cash or people that are looking to invest. That's, that's his role. And it allows us to take the time to do that because that, that generates more cash for the company rather than getting bogged down in can so-and-so replace this carpet. What I would say on regards to a tenant onboarding process is have some understanding of it, uh, have an understanding of how it works, what's expected, uh, what documents are needed. Always find that browsing through social media groups and speaking to people, sometimes it's very easy for people to pull with a wool over your eyes. And I find that's quite easy if you don't have the knowledge of something in the first place. So do your own homework. Uh, when a tenant signs a six month AST, what's expected? Where's the deposit gonna go? Do you have to take a deposit? If you do, where's it gonna go? Uh, will you accept pets in your homes? If you will, are you gonna charge higher rent? Uh, what's the tenancy agreement look like? What caveats are you putting in there? Do you need a guarantor? Now it, it can be a whole episode in itself, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. And a lot of this comes down to you. What would you like? At the end of the day, it's your it's your property, it's your home, it's it's your asset. Of course, you want to work with the tenants as best as possible and provide the best uh, product and service that we can to the tenants so to create that win-win relationship that is vital for success, I believe, in property. But what do you expect? Uh, again, Alan and I have sat down, we've gone through these processes, we've made everyone aware, we've made all the agents aware what we will accept, what we won't accept. We let the agents deal with the rest of it. So that's, that is a tenant onboarding process. Um, I think there's a, I can't remember the exact stat, but it's proven that if people uh, have pets, um, they will stay in your homes longer. Top tip would be if someone requests a pet, again, up to you if you say yes or no, we normally say yes, as long as the tenant accepts responsibility for any damage that's done, uh, any uh, flea treatment or anything like that that may happen as a result of, of the pet being in there, as long as they accept a responsibility for that and financial liability, it, it's absolutely fine by us. And we'll put such things in the tenancy agreement as well. And again, if you sign a tenancy agreement, voila, happy days. So that's a personal, that, that is our onboarding process. Basically speak to the agents. This one, next question is, we get asked this quite a lot. Uh, so I sound a bit gravelly today. I'm not sure why, could be the uh, hay fever uh, kicking in. <clears throat> My apologies. Uh, how much cash do you need to start in property? How long's a piece of string? If, if you're going down to, if you're going down the buy to let route, uh, yeah, how long is a piece of string? I'm really not going to be able to answer that properly. Uh, depends on your strategy. It depends on where you're looking to invest, what you're looking to do, how you're looking to do it. Do you want to use your own cash? Uh, are you going to use OPM, other people's money? It could be anything. You know, if you're starting with, you know, a lease option or rent to rent, chances are you're not going to need a big capital injection. 
if you're starting with a regular buy-to-let. Again, chances are you're probably not gonna need a big capital injection, depending on where you're gonna purchase that property, especially if you're leveraging uh, the bank's finances as well. So how much cash do you need? It depends, really it depends. I, I completely aware that is a chocolate teapot answer as well, but it's the truth. Um, yeah, if people ask how much uh, did we start with, uh, we were lucky enough to raise about 50,000, I think, uh, back in the day uh, to purchase something cash. Uh, that property in hindsight has actually done quite well in the portfolio. So that's what we started with. And, and again, I'm sure if you were given 50,000 uh, pounds from an investor, you could find something to do with it. Uh, predominantly in the north, I would say, but you'll find something to do with it. But yeah, uh, it depends is the answer to that. How long is a piece of string? Depends on the area, depends on what you're doing, depends on the strategy that you're looking to get involved with as well. The one thing I would say is if people say, oh, you know, you can invest with absolutely zero, I'm still skeptical on, uh, skeptical? Spectacle, <laughs> I forgot the words. I'm still skeptical on that because there's gonna be at least a degree of cash that you probably have to put in somewhere. Now, whether that is set up company or put in uh, fuel in your car to go visit an area or whatever, there, there is probably gonna be some level of capital involvement on your behalf. So I, I don't buy into this theory of, you know, completely zero money down. There's gotta be an investment somewhere, regardless of what it is. And maybe that's me nitpicking, but that is my opinion. Why did you invest in Hull? Uh, yeah, good question. Still asking myself after five years. <laughs> no, all joking aside. Um, we, we took a lot of time. We took a lot of time going up and down the country. Uh, it, long story cut short, we were traveling in 2014, 2015. We were uh, lucky enough to go to the World Cup in Brazil. Um, we had worked hard, we'd saved hard uh, for that adventure, decided then to might as well travel to South America and Central America as well. So we stayed out there for, for nine months, 10 months, and it was great. But in that time, you know, we were talking about investing, what we're gonna do, um, you know, we wanna travel more, how do we travel more without having to come back and go to work, you know, get in that rat race as such. Uh, and then we decided, how, you know, property's probably the best thing to do, probably the best, um, asset to get involved with and uh, you know that's what that's what we've done uh, in terms of why did we invest in Hull we took time out to go up and down the UK we done a lot of reading read a lot of books we listened to quite a few podcasts as well thankfully we've got the internet nowadays it's quite easy to google stuff and we followed what other people's advice was uh, Decide what you want to do, decide why you want to do it. And then once you've got those two things sorted out, those two things sorted out, then find an area. Now nine times out of 10 people will invest in the area that they live in, I guess, but you can go a bit further afield as well. So once we decided on a strategy, once we decided on why we were doing it, what we wanted to do, ideally how we wanted to do it, jumped in the car, I went up and down the country. I visited uh, a multitude of places. Uh, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, uh, right up in the northeast, Newcastle, Sunderland area, Hartlepool, Hull, a plethora uh, of areas. And we just eliminated bit by bit, you know, what's going on in the market, what 
uh, developments are going on, uh, what the what what's the current you know town plan? Because uh, every, every council's got this like 10, 15 year plan. So we read through them. We'd stayed in places during the day. We stayed in places overnight because what something looks like in the day is completely different from what it can be like at night. How are the people? You know, what, what's, the, what's the rental market like in these areas? I mean, general rule of thumb, if you're renting somewhere in the UK anyway on a, for buy-to-let, there's not many places, I don't think it wouldn't work, um, you know, because demand for properties, homes in the UK is much higher than supply. So, you know, those basic economics are in, they're in our advantage, they're in your advantage, they're in everyone's advantage anyway. So yeah, we just eliminated, uh, went from 10 to five to two. Um, we ended up between Liverpool and Hull. Uh, reason we ended up yeah, with Liverpool and Hull, Liverpool, uh, we're both Liverpool fans, but also because of the, at the time, the plans that the uh, Liverpool Football Club had for the regeneration of the Anfield area. I'll be honest with you, you know, I remember going up to there about 10 years ago, at a horrific area, oh, horrific, really, really not good at all. Having been to Anfield, uh, January 2020 was the last time I was there. A lot's changed. A lot has changed. So we ended up in, in Liverpool looking at that area going, well, we love the club, but also actually the area is great because of the stadium development plans that are going on. Uh, a lot of regeneration was planned for that area as well. Versus Hull, where Hull had a lot of uh, rental demand. Uh, for, for buy-to-lets. Demographics in Hull are completely different from those in Liverpool anyway. Uh, the thing we liked about Hull was long-term renewable energy. Uh, so at the time, Siemens were looking at building a wind turbine plant. There were a multitude of wind factories uh, just off the Humber Estuary as well. And we thought that from a renewable energy point of view, uh, we thought that that would lead to a lot more job creation uh, in, in Western East Hull. Uh, along with other surrounding areas, uh, and also looking at the town plan, the, the, you know, the city plan, uh, the fact that Hull had been awarded at the time the UK City of Culture as well. Uh, all these things weighed up, and when it came between Liverpool and Hull, we just made a pros and cons list, and we had to make a decision. Otherwise, if we didn't make a decision, we'd probably still be stuck in analysis paralysis now, and we wouldn't have done anything. Uh, so we just said Hull, and uh, that was it. Uh, thankfully, from there, uh, circumstances at the time meant that I was able to relocate. So originally from Reading, moved up to Hull. So yeah, that's how we picked Hull. I think I've got a fly flying around on the video as well, so that's fun times. Uh, so yeah, that's why we invested in Hull. Uh, the economics are good. Demand's much higher than supply. It's got a decent work uh, a market for uh, work. Uh, something that's going to keep improving time and time again. And uh, having spoken to a lot of people uh, about areas they're investing in as well, just decided, yeah, Hull's going to be the place. Loads of renewable energy, bits and bobs. And ultimately, we, we had to make a decision anyway. So there you are. That's why we ended up investing in Hull. Uh, last FAQ that we'll do before we get into a couple of specific questions. Um, how do you know if an area is good or not? There's the big F word in property, uh, fundamentals. 
fundamentals. What is an area like? What does an area have? So if you just imagine that you're looking for a, you, just let's just imagine you're looking for a house to buy for yourself. When you look for a house, what do you look for? Do you look for a train station, for example? Do you look for good access to main roads, motorways? Do you look for uh, good public transport? Uh, so buses this time. Is there a good bus route into town? Do you look for an area that's a bit vibrant? Uh, maybe you've got kids. Are you looking for uh, a good area where there are a lot of schools, uh, good schools as well? Shops, local amenities, these sorts of things. It, you know, when you look for your own home, what are you looking for? Uh, probably imagine that you are looking for those things. Uh, therefore, if you are then purchasing a property in an area that has those fundamentals, chances are you're gonna do quite well. The other thing I would say to how do you know if an area is good or not, is looking at doing some research. Again, visit the area. What's it like in the day? What's it like at night? Go around and have a chat with the estate agents or lettings agents. You don't even have to necessarily physically visit the area first. You can you know, pick up the blower, pick up the phone, and, uh, and do a lot of this research on, on the phone. But do go and have a look at the area, get the feedback from agents, get the feedback from people. What's going on in the area? Is the area good? What's it like to live there? The more research you do like that, the more you'll be able to determine whether or not an area is, is good enough or not. That's how you do it. Just take the time to do the research. Uh, and again, think about your process. If you were buying a home somewhere, what would you look for? Most people are gonna be different, but that is what it is. Uh, but chances are you're gonna have good public transport access, good access to local shops, schools, um, access to motorways or, or you know, major roads, etc., etc. So chances are, if you're buying in an area like that, you know, it's going to work well for you. Um, all of that being said, the caveat: things can still go wrong. You know, we've got some, we've got properties dotted around X, Y, and Z areas. Um, some areas that have changed demographically uh, since we've invested in them. But ultimately, if demand is higher than supply, you'll be fine. On to some specific questions now, I'll give a shout out to uh, people as well. Uh, so Curtis Thornton is asking, what's the first, what is the first thing you would outsource slash delegate and why? I, I would say property management, uh, personally. Uh, yeah, it's something that, going back to what I said earlier on, Aaron and I, we spoke about and we decided that we didn't want to get involved in the property management side of things. It's not something we had an interest in doing. Uh, we would rather someone else do that for us. And of course, happy to invest in paying a fee for that to be done. So I would say, once you've got the property up and running, once you've got it tenanted, uh, I would outsource the management of that to someone else. Uh, that is a personal preference. Uh, I've seen people that say, well, you can outsource raising finance or, or this and that. I'd, I'd be skeptical of that as well. I think that if people are gonna invest in you or with you, they're gonna want to know you. So don't send someone else out to get the funds. It just seems a bit stupid. Uh, property sourcing, 
viewings, you know, all of these things. These are things that can be outsourced, but yeah. What is the first thing that you would outsource delegating? Why? For me, for Aaron, uh, it would be property management. It's not an area we want to get involved in. And uh, we know that when we purchase assets, uh, buy to let properties, uh, we are after a uh, the, the, this, this ideology of uh, building a relatively passive lifestyle. Uh, so that's what I would suggest. So thank you for that, Curtis. Uh, next question, in fact, the only other specific, specific question we got for this episode, uh, Jimmy Coppin, uh, how can I invest in an area when I live so far away from it? I wrote about this in Buy to Let, How to Get Started. It's the time versus money paradox. And it really comes down to what you're comfortable with and, and how you want to how you want to work, how you want to function, how you are as a human being. Some people will want to be in their area. Uh, some people will not want to be in their area. Some people will want to outsource things. Some people will want to be very hands-on. How can you invest in an area when you live so far away from it? It takes a lot of trust in people. It means that you have to take time to come up with systems and processes that work for everyone? Are you gonna take the time initially to go back and forth from the area, to get to know the area, to get to know the agents? Can you take time on social media to do the same thing? Finding people that are operating within that area, property sourcing agents, estate agents, lettings agents, all of the above. And if you're happy to set up your portfolio or your first property, whatever it might be, knowing that you don't want to be in the area and you've got a trusted team there that are doing the work for you and, and you've got a, you're creating a win-win situation, then you'll find that it's a piece of cake. It really is a piece of cake. I would say that let's be under no illusions in property, things can go wrong. It's part and parcel of life. But how can you invest in an area when you live so far away from it? Systems and processes, trust in, in people, uh, and also knowing your area. Uh, you know, if you live in London and you are looking at investing in, I don't know, Newcastle, for example, it's a three and a half hour train ride, I think, from King's Cross. Yeah, get on the train, go up there, spend some time up there, get to know the people, get to know areas, do your homework, do your research. Once you've done that, crack on with it. You know, we're blessed with uh, good technology nowadays where we can have uh, WhatsApp video calls, we can have Facebook video calls. Um, you know, we've got mobile phones, we just chat to people. We can send photos, all of the above. That makes life easier. Uh, goodness knows how it was, you know, done back in the 60s, 70s or whatever. That's, you know, um, I think I'd have gone bonkers <laughs> if I was doing it back then. But we're blessed nowadays with technology. Uh, so that's how I would do it uh, at the moment, you know, at the current time of, of recording, you know, when we got our first property, uh, I was living in Reading at the time. So it's still four hours away uh, from the property, but, you know, it ran okay. Um, absolutely fine. The only reason I moved up to Hull was to, but basically when I was putting a bunch of fuel in the car going up once or twice a week from Reading, um, you know, the cost of the car, blah, 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 blah just looked at the rental prices in whole and went, actually, it's gonna be cheaper to move. Circumstances at the time meant 
that I moved. But I know in the next few years, uh, as and when I venture out to uh, Mexico to start a new chapter of life out there, I know that that will uh, take me away from our investment area, which I think is going to be a very good thing because in that puts a bigger reliance then on people, systems, trust, etc., etc., etc. Plus, you know, we, we now know, especially Hull, we know it relatively well. So it takes time. So that's a really babbly answer. Uh, but yeah, I'll just repeat it again once more. How can I invest in an area when I live so far away from it? As long as you know the area, as long as you have done your homework, done your research, you know what you're after, you know why you are doing it, uh, be mentally prepared that something can go wrong, probably will go wrong at some point in property, uh, then I, I think you know you will overcome that mental challenge uh, without a shadow of a doubt. That does it for this FAQ uh, episode in Investor Q&A session. Uh, hopefully you found that incredibly useful. If you have questions that you want answered, uh, something that hasn't been mentioned before, uh, in this show, uh, email us, rob at tpnpodcast.com. Happily do another one of these uh, episodes. It's all about providing great content for you and helping you to uh, either improve yourself, your property portfolio, or to get you kickstarted, of course, into purchasing your first property. As ever, uh, follow us on the, all the social media channels. Uh, do leave a review on iTunes. Uh, we like the five-star ones as well. Anything else, email rob at tpmpodcast.com. Really look forward to hearing from you. Uh, until next time, I'll feel the same.